0: You will take your uh, Bibles now and turn to Job chapter 12. Our sermon series through the book of Job takes us this morning to Job chapter 12, beginning at verse 13. And I'll be reading through chapter 13, verse 19. Hear God's word. With God our wisdom and might... He has counsel and understanding. If he tears down, none can rebuild. If he shuts a man in, none can open. If he withholds the waters, they dry up. If he sends them out, they overwhelm the land. With him are strength and sound wisdom. The deceived and the deceiver are his. He leads counselors away stripped and judges he makes fools. He looses the bonds of kings and binds a waist cloth on their hips. He leads priests away stripped and overthrows the mighty. He deprives of speech those who are trusted and takes away the discernment of the elders. He pours contempt on princes and loosens the belt of the strong. He uncovers the deeps out of darkness and brings deep darkness to light. He makes nations great and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and leads them away. He takes away understanding from the chiefs of the people of the earth and makes them wander in a trackless waste. They grope in the dark without light, and he makes them stagger like a drunken man. Behold, my eye has seen all this, my ear has heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I am not inferior to you. But I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to argue my case with God. As for you, you whitewash with lies. Worthless physicians are you all. Oh, that you would keep silent and it would be your wisdom. Hear now my argument and listen to the pleadings of my lips. Will you speak falsely for God and speak deceitfully for him? Will you show partiality toward him? Will you plead the case for God? Will it be well with you when he searches you out? Or can you deceive him as one deceives a man? He will surely rebuke you if in secret you show partiality. Will not his majesty terrify you and the dread of him fall upon you? Your maxims are proverbs of ashes, your defenses are defenses of clay. Let me have silence and I will speak, and let come on me what may. Why should I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hand? Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. This will be my salvation that the godless shall not come before him. Keep listening to my words and let my declaration be in your ears. Behold, I have prepared my case. I know that I shall be in the right. Who is there who will contend with me? For then I would be silent and die. Last time we considered Job's response to Zophar, presumably also in the hearing of Eliphaz and Bildad, and Job is refusing to go along with what I have called the system, having adopted the name that's been given by Christopher Ashe in his commentary to this theological system of Job's friends. Their thinking is overly simplistic. It's not realistic. Their system does not account for the nuances of life, of real life under the sun, Job has defended his godliness. He has defended his ability to understand scriptural truth. He's also pointed out the prideful attitude of his friends. We spent a good amount of time on verse 5 of chapter 12 in this illustration of a torch which is despised in the thought of one who is at ease. Contempt is ready for those whose feet slip. Job's friends are These people who are at ease because their lives are free of trouble and they also don't think they need any guidance through life. And the two are related. The torch represents the need for scriptural wisdom to guide one's path. And the life of ease of Job's friends has led them to think that they no longer need the light of God's word. They think they have arrived at a level of wisdom that has left them to experience nothing but the blessings of a life of ease. Meanwhile, they hold Job in contempt. They even mockingly laugh at him because his feet, as they see it, are slipping. They have no doubt that he is on a wrong path spiritually, which is evident from all of the tribulation that he is experiencing. At the same time, they think that because of their age and experience, they have wisdom and understanding to know exactly what is going on with Job. Notice verse 12. But Job is also of age and experience. If, as the system teaches, age and experience are to be equated with wisdom, then Job has something to bring to the discussion. Job points out evidence of the fact that the system doesn't line up with reality. Again, going back into chapter 12, verse 6, according to that verse, there are robbers and sinners who provoke God, and yet they are at peace and secure. They are openly idolaters and yet are not experiencing the judgment of God at least for now, in their earthly lives. A cursory look at creation also tells us that in nature there are all kinds of things happening that belong to the curse of sin on creation, things that do not seem fair, that do not seem proper. We can see death all around us in the animal world and in natural disasters. And though Job doesn't give us specifics, we recognize that animals die every day who have done nothing wrong. They're going about their business as God created them to do when a predator takes them out. There's a cruelty, there's a violence to the natural world that can be hard to understand. And yet we can and we must acknowledge that God is in control of all that happens in the natural world. But this in turn means that God allows things to happen that don't fit this set pattern of the system that only the evil experience judgment while the good experience nothing but prosperity. The system contradicts reality by not allowing for a world that is far from predictable and orderly and tame. And In the verses we are considering this morning, Job lays out yet more evidence for a world that contradicts the system. In chapter 12, verse 13 through the end of chapter 12, we find a discussion of additional ways our world shows itself to be a dangerous, unpredictable place. Focus turns to the unpredictable chaos that belongs to this world that man cannot control, particularly in the raising up and casting down of leaders and nations. And before Job gets into further describing this world that contradicts the system, he sets forth truth about God that we need to hold clearly before us, truth that we must not forget. Job begins there in verse 13 by setting forth the wise sovereignty of God, which governs all of the ups and downs in the world that he's going to go on to talk about. Job is not about to say that that things take place in our world by chance or contrary to God's will, but he asserts there in verse 13, with God our wisdom and might, he has counsel and understanding. That wisdom is with God, and that to God belongs understanding are are ways of saying that God knows this world that he has created. He's familiar with all that is going on. He has understanding of the intricacies of how this world works. And God's counsel refers to his decrees according to which he within the Godhead of, of the Trinity has consulted with himself, and he's made plans that concern the creation from beginning to end. God's counsel means that he has planned everything that takes place in this world so that nothing has been left to chance, nothing has been given over to man or to Satan to, to carry out however we or he may see fit. No, God has counsel that concerns this world, and that with God is wisdom means that this counsel of God, the, this, these plans of God are wise. And that God is wise means that he has used his understanding to formulate the best means to accomplish his plans, to accomplish his goals. And that God then adds God's might to the mix of all of these attributes reminds us that God does not just have, he doesn't have just a council where he makes plans, um, but then those plans don't end up taking place. Uh, That's how often it is with our plans. When we make plans, we are to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Because not all of our plans work out, but God has power, he has might to bring about all that he plans. God's counsel stands, scripture says. God's counsel happens. God accomplishes all of his holy will. Nothing happens apart from his will. Nothing happens against his will. Talking now about the will of his decree through his decrees that have come out of his counsel, he has foreordained everything that comes to pass. And this includes chaos. This includes these things that man cannot control that Job goes on to describe in verses 14 and 15 and following notice. First of all, verses 14 and 15, if he tears down, none can rebuild. If he shuts a man in, none can open. If he withholds the waters, they dry up. If he sends them out, They overwhelm the land. If God decides to tear down what man has built, none can rebuild. Uh, We may be thinking of literally a building, maybe a company, maybe a mountain, maybe an empire. When God tears something down and decides that he wants it gone, it is not going to be able to be rebuilt. If God shuts a man in, we might picture a man being shut in prison One commentator refers to Job being shut up in his grief. We're talking about here something that God does that restricts man's freedom to do what he wants to do. Perhaps sends a storm so that we can't go to work. He sends a pandemic so that economies and and businesses are shut in or shut down. He ordains an illness or injury that makes us bedridden. However we can be shut in, none can open what God has shut in. God controls the waters, sometimes holding them back and there's drought, other times sending the water out and there's flooding. So his wisdom, his understanding, his counsel, and his power take in even the dangers, even the unpredictable disasters of the natural world. Again, we are reminded in verse 16 that with God is this combination of strength and wisdom where God knows what he wants to do and What he wants to do is wise, and then he has the strength to bring it about. Notice how this is in contrast to man. God is able, as he wills, to undo and to counteract the plans and actions of the most powerful people on earth. This includes control over the deceived and the deceiver, according to verse 16. The deceiver is a person who is able to conceal his intentions, and he takes advantage of others, and because deceivers are good at what they do, people end up being deceived. People end up being manipulated and abused, and often deceivers think they're too smart to ever be caught and stopped, and the deceived often feel like there's no recourse, there's no justice, and yet God is in control of all of this. While God doesn't deceive anyone, his sovereign plan takes in both the deceivers and the deceived, He knows the wrongs that are being done, and there is no wrong that won't one day meet with his justice. God will, either in this life or in the life to come, bring all deception out into the open. But in the meantime, perplexing things take place through the deceptions of man. There are many things that are hidden that we do not see, that we do not recognize. According to verse 17, God's wisdom and might take in counselors and judges the people in government who are looked to for advice and who are looked to to, to make wise decisions. And God is able to strip them of their mental powers and turn them into fools. And in this way, to strip them of their positions of influence. And in this way, guide in one direction or another those who are subject to their influence. Now, as for kings, verse 18, God looses the bonds of kings and instead binds them This verse, uh, especially when we look at the Hebrew, appears to involve a figure of speech because these bonds, uh, when it says he looses the bonds of kings, these bonds are literally in the Hebrew discipline. Uh, This is chastening. This is correction. Um, That kings have bonds seems to refer to their binding authority over their subjects to discipline and correct them. You might say kings have the power to bind the people under them, they, they do that by holding them responsible to obey the laws of the land. And they have the power to punish those who disobey. The second part of verse 18, to have a waistcloth bound about one's waist is, is likely a, a picture of a prisoner. And so putting it all together, the idea is that God takes away the power of kings and he brings them into subjection. Now, there are some who take these bonds in a literal way as something like shackles, and they think the idea is that God frees uh, people that kings have imprisoned while the kings themselves are put in prison. However we want to look at it, the main idea of verse 18 is that God utterly overturns, as he wills, earthly authorities by humbling them into subjection. The same reversals take place with priests and the mighty, Mighty there referring to anyone who is in a position of authority and power. Verse 20 refers to those who are trusted, like counselors and judges already mentioned, but also elders, people who are looked to for wise advice and leadership. God is able to deprive them of speech. He's able to take away their discernment. He's able to take away their mental powers and to prevent them from putting together eloquent and effective speeches that otherwise would motivate people to listen to them and to follow them. In verses 21 and 22, Job is setting forth the truth of God's ability to take away ruler's power altogether. He makes princes contemptible in the eyes of their subjects, so that their their subjects no longer give them support. And in a society where people would wear long robes, Uh, They would have to gird up their robes with a belt whenever they wanted to work or if they really even to move, to run, or to travel. And for God to loosen the belts of the strong means that they're not able to act. They're not able to carry out their plans. Because if your belt is loosened, your robe falls to your feet, you cannot move. you you, You probably will trip over your robe as you try to walk. God's uncovering of the deeps. And his bringing of deep darkness to light may mean that God allows forces of darkness with their evil and chaos into our world. Uh, that's one line of interpretation. I prefer the interpretation that says, verse 22 is referring to rulers whose evil plans are hidden to human view, but God uncovers what they are doing and brings it to light. And in, in, and in this way, brings their, their plans, their devices to an end. But the implication, notice, is that there are all kinds of evil plans being made and implemented that unless God uncovers them, are allowed to go on, are allowed to be successful. As for nations, God is in charge of nations becoming great while others are destroyed. He allows some nations to expand in population and and in their borders while others are led away and diminished. Think of how this even happened to God's own people in the nation of Israel, though some years after Job. But in the end, notice as well that God is sovereign. Think of this, even over the thinking of the earth's leaders, he can take away their understanding, their understanding of themselves, their understanding of the world, their nation, the role that they have in leadership, etc, and the result is that they wander in a trackless waste, which means they don't have a clue where they are and where they are going. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know anything about what's up and what's down. They grope in the dark without light, they stagger like a drunken man. They've lost touch with reality. They're not capable of making wise decisions and, and, and accomplishing their plans. This is all according to God's decisions. I'm reminded of Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is a stream of water. In the hand of the Lord, he turns it wherever he will. These are all examples of how we live in a world that contradicts the system of Job's friends who insist on believing that everything happens for obvious reasons, that good things always happen to good people, bad things to bad people, The truth is there are evil rulers who are allowed to have positions of power even if they are eventually exposed for what they are. There are people, whether evil or not, who are prosperous in positions of power who are suddenly brought down. We live in a world with ups and downs, and these are ups and downs we do not always expect, ups and downs we cannot predict, and yet God is in control of all of it. Before Job turns to explaining yet another reason to question the system of his friends, he begins chapter 13 with some repetition of things he's already said. He can't help but notice the discrepancies between what he sees in the world and what his friends believe. And he insists yet again he knows what they know. He insists he's not inferior to them in understanding. And he also repeats his desire to speak with God and to argue his case with God Exactly because he knows that the system of his friends is not adequate to explain the events in our world and specifically to explain what is going on in his own life. And in chapter 13, verses 4 and 5, Job becomes very frank with his friends. He accuses them of whitewashing with lies, he refers to them as worthless physicians. He tells them that the wisest thing they could do is to keep silent. What's the problem? What are they lying about? Why are they not very good doctors? The problem is that they are lying about God. This system of Job's friends, it contradicts reality about God, which is a very good reason to reject the system. Let's consider what Job says to his friends in verses 7 and 8. He says they speak falsely for God. They speak deceitfully for him. They show partiality toward God and plead the case for him. The problem is this, that the things that they are saying are proverbs of ashes. Their defenses are defenses of clay. So what he is accusing them of doing is standing up for God, but not in a proper way, not in a way that lines up with truth. The idea of whitewashing is to cover over something in order to try and hide what's really going on. Reminded of... Jesus and his accusations against the religious leaders of his day says they were like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. That's Matthew 23 verse 27. Something that is whitewashed in the context here of being whitewashed with lies. It means it's made to look all white and clean but It betrays what's really going on underneath. And Job applies this analogy to what Job's friends are doing with God. Job's friends don't know what to do with a God who is unpredictable and how he responds to good and evil in this life. And so they want to deny reality and they want to paint God as being and acting in ways that are unlike how he really is. They talk about God as one who is always just in his dealings with people on earth. I'm talking about on earth. Who therefore always punishes evil, always rewards righteousness here in this earthly life. That's the God of the system. Job uses the word partiality to describe his friend's defense of God. It's like God is in court. And Job's friends are his defenders. And in order to get God off the hook and in order to preserve God's reputation, they lie about him. They're not really determined to get to the bottom of the truth about God. They've already made up their minds about how God must be. And so they are going to present God in a favorable light that leaves out important facts. But in doing all of this, Job says they're hiding the truth. They're lying about God. Specifically, in Job's case, they have said that God will come against sinners in wrath, even if they've repented of their sins, even if they have placed their faith in God. In other words, these friends are contradicting the God of the gospel. And they certainly know all about how God operates. That there's no way that God would ever allow a righteous, godly person to suffer. Think about it. if If the system was right, then Jesus would never have been allowed to suffer he suffered the righteous for the unrighteous. But if that was not possible, as the system would argue, then we would have no salvation. Job rightly questions them, that is his friends, about how God is going to respond to what they are doing. Do they think he doesn't know what they are saying about him? Do do they think he's going to be happy with them? Job is sure that they will be rebuked, that they are going to be overcome with terror and dread when God confronts them. And Job is right. We have to wait for a few chapters, but God is going to say, Job, you're right. Your friends are wrong. They need to repent. Job rightly knows that the system is not going to stand up to God's scrutiny. He knows that their sayings in support of the system, they sound so right. These maxims, these proverbs, these defenses of his friends, they, they sound right, but in the end will be shown to be worthless. They are ashes. They are defenses of clay. So far, Job has explained that the system contradicts reality by its claim that evil people always suffer, it denies or ignores all the ups and downs of life that happen to everyone, good and evil, that are readily observable even in creation all around us. Arguably, worst of all, the system lies about God. So what is Job's response? Come back to this desire that he has to have a meeting with God rather then accept the system, He will take his chances that if he has a meeting with God, and if God is to explain why He is suffering, there's going to be a reason. there are probably perhaps even several reasons, but none of which will have nothing, uh, none of which will have anything to do with his sin. And Job knows what's at stake in calling for such a meeting. He knows there's danger in approaching a holy God when he is a mere creature and a sinful one at that. But he's willing to accept the risks. He says in verse 13, Let come on me what may. Verse 14 is probably saying something similar when he says, Why should I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hand? We don't know exactly what this expression means. It's not found anywhere else in Scripture. But based on the context, I think we can make a pretty good deduction of what he is saying. Christopher Ash translates and explains verse 14, as a statement rather than a question. Uh, He he explains it this way. He has um, Job saying, I take my flesh and my teeth, which may mean something like I bite my tongue to brace myself for danger and put my life in my hand. Some commentators suggest that Job is, that that this is a figure. um, We can picture Job taking his flesh and his teeth and we Think of how a dog will carry a bone or a piece of meat in his mouth, and, and then all these other dogs will, will come and attack. They're trying to steal away the morsel. And the idea is that Job is willing to place himself in a position of danger. And so it sounds very similar to an expression that we use, I take my life in my hands. And this is when we find those well-known and very powerful powerful words of verse 15 Where Job says, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Though Job may end up being killed, he is still willing to argue his ways to God's face. And the reason he is willing to do this is because Job believes that in the end he will be saved. He says he has hope. And biblical hope is the belief that no matter what happens, there is good that awaits you in the future. He speaks in verse 16 of salvation. This will be my salvation that the godless shall not come before he, uh, will not come before him. And so are you catching what Job is saying and how these words are words of faith in the gospel? He is indirectly saying that he knows he is not a godless unbeliever, that God is going to cast away in his wrath. But notice he does realize that godless people are not going to be able to stand before God and live. He rightly understands that those who do not repent of sin, those who do not have faith in the sacrifice of the Messiah to come, who are thus unforgiven of their sins, those who do not have a status of righteousness with God are going to be doomed if they would meet God. But Job knows in his heart that he's not one of these godless ones. He knows that if he is able to meet with God and argue his case, to argue his faith, he's going to be vindicated. He says, I know I shall be in the right. He refers in verse 19 to those who might theoretically try to punch holes in his hope. But as he in asking, who is there who will contend with me? He's essentially saying he doesn't believe that anyone can present arguments that would destroy his case. But he says, if there are, in fact, arguments that can destroy my case, I will be silent and die. But based on everything else he says here, he believes in the opposite. He is sure that he will be vindicated by God as a true believer. Job's words there. um, Let's see, which verse is that? Um, Verse uh, 16, where he says, This will be my salvation. Are likely the words that the Apostle Paul is thinking about in Philippians 1.19, where Paul, in the context of his imprisonment for Christ, says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of jesus christ this will turn out for my deliverance literally this will turn out for my salvation the greek translation here of job 13:16 the greek translation of the septuagint matches exactly the wording of philippians 1:19 and paul says this will turn out for my salvation and both job and paul appear what they appear to be saying is that They are going to move forward in their suffering knowing that everything is going to turn out well in the end. What God does in their lives, even though it involves suffering, will prove that they belong to him. In the end, they will be vindicated. Anyone who might imagine that their suffering was due to God's hate will be proved wrong. Suffering, even if unto death, will simply mean the salvation of being with Christ. So, Job asserts that even if his suffering ends in death under God's sovereign plan, he will hope in him. He's not going to let go of the hope that one day he will be with God and it will be revealed that God does love him after all. Job is an example of faith to us. Faith is trusting in God even when it seems like God is against us. Faith is trusting in God and looking to Christ even if all he has planned for you is suffering. Remember Satan's claim that Job was only following after God because God had hedged him around and and put this hedge around him, and and it's just because of of Job's good life. That God is why he follows after you. That was Job's accusation. Satan claimed that if God were to take away Job's enjoyment of life, that he would curse God, and his faith would be proven to be in vain. In other words, Satan wanted to prove that Job really didn't have faith that he didn't really love God for God, apart from earthly things. Job is passing the test. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. In your life, when things don't go as you would like, when unpleasant things come your way, when difficulties become the order of the day, and when it appears God is against you, the calling of your faith is to trust in God anyway. Faith trusts God even when you don't understand his ways with you. Faith says, I'm going to put my hope in God because there is no hope anywhere else. In fact, if there is no hope in God, then there is no hope. But I believe God's good news that there is salvation for sinners in the way of repentance and in the way of faith in the Messiah. Think about how we have so much more knowledge and proof of God's love for his people in the gospel than Job had, and yet Job was able to surrender himself to God's will and to speak these amazing words of faith. Even if you slay me, I will hope in you. We have even greater incentive to hope in God. Uh, Christ has come. Christ has offered himself on the cross. Paul says in Romans 8, verses 31 and 32, If God is for us, who can be against us? And that, Those words sound an awful lot like Job saying in verses 18 and 19, I know that I shall be in the right. Who is there who will contend with me? Does that not sound like the Apostle Paul? If God is for us, who can be against us? Paul goes on to say, He who did not spare his own son, gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And then Romans 8 is concluded with the words that nothing, essentially nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Based on what Job is saying here, Job knew that. He surely didn't feel like that was true. He wasn't sure what all lay in store for him in terms of suffering But he did know that if he were to come before God and to plead the promises of the gospel, that there would be hope and that there would be salvation. To be allowed in God's presence. To be allowed in God's presence as a person forgiven and loved. That's the very essence of salvation. The very essence of salvation that Job understood and is really all the hope that we need be in God's presence, forgiven and loved. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for the gospel. We thank you that even saints long ago, even before the coming of Christ, were able to have faith by your grace. You granted them this this gift of faith that was able to rise above their circumstances and to, to allow them to have hope in you despite the suffering of this life. Lord, we pray that we also would recognize in our own life this same faith, this faith that is able to rise above our circumstances, a faith that has our hope in you, even if you were to to slay us, even if uh, if death is is uh, what you have planned for us, um, Father. We pray that uh, uh, you would give us hope in the life to come. In fact, we know that all of us will one day leave the life of this earth, and this is not the end. Death is not the end, but is but the entrance to the glories of heaven. Lord, we thank you how Job, in a, in a primitive, simple way, was able to understand these things by your grace. And we thank you that we live in the New Testament where we can recognize that indeed you have kept your promises. Christ has come. Christ has paid for our sins. He, in fact, suffered the righteous for the unrighteous, showing that not all suffering is a matter of strict justice. Father, we thank you, uh, Lord, that there is hope for us as sinners, that we can stand before you even though you are a holy God, certainly not in ourselves, but by your grace, through the merits of Christ. Lord, encourage us, we pray, that despite the suffering of this life, that we are loved, that there is hope.